So if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are about two months into this study of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we will be taking a short detour in a few weeks, as Pastor Matt alluded to. We'll be talking about uh, discipleship, Um, but that'll be in a few weeks. Right now, we're in the midst of this extraordinary section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is just revealing how much this church means to him. When you're, when you're reading the, the first three chapters of 2 Corinthians, uh, sometimes just the words on the page uh, can, can cause us to lose the emotion of what is being communicated and what's being said. And so much of my life has spent, been spent uh, studying the Scripture and Paul's epistles and the things that he wrote. And I'm just so familiar with his tendencies and the way that he expresses himself. And it really strikes me how raw he is in this section of Scripture and the way that he is using the wisdom and logic that God gave him to be able to Uh, pour his heart out to these people that he loves, and the way that it uh, causes us to respond to what we hear and what we read. It's just an amazing uh, opportunity that we have before us today. So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to look at a few verses this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for placing us Here, we thank you for your providential care to give us the opportunity to study these words that are perfect and inerrant, and they're your words, and they're intended for us. And God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a blessing to the people in our community. We thank you for the way that together we make each other stronger, Lord. Thank you for the diversity of giftedness in this room. Thank you for... Uh, just the opportunity we have to be a family made up of people who are different in so many ways, but bound together by your blood in unity. And we're grateful for that, Lord. And thank you. Our differences make us stronger, and we give you praise and glory for that, Lord. So, God, today we just ask for your spirit to empower this time. Lord, give us ears to hear. May our hearts receive with gladness what you have to say to us. Do in this time, Lord, your perfect work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the primary concern of Paul in this section of Scripture is the the false teaching that has arisen in the church at Corinth in his absence. And here's the thing. Last week we talked about false gospels. We talked about how prevalent uh, false gospels are. Uh, I just highlighted a few simple ways that many people today are deceived. And, uh, well, you know, it was painful for me. I had multiple people. Listen, I love you, okay? But I'm just being honest. I want you to just know right off the bat, I had multiple people after last week respond to me by saying, hey, thank you so much 
for clarifying the way that I've been wrongly praying for people that I'm concerned about. No, that's not what I did. I clarified that you don't know the gospel as evidenced by the way you pray. The problem with that response is that here's what we think. We think that the reason God's not answering our prayers is because we're not praying our prayers correctly. No. You see how twisted we are? We can find any opportunity to turn it back on us. Good gracious. That is false gospel. And if you don't think it is prevalent, you are deceived. It has woven its wicked thread through the lives of people all over the place and including in places where the gospel is preached clearly. It's dangerous. I told you, be careful about the ideas. The ideas you intake and the identities that you put on. Be careful. Be careful because look at the consequences of it. So when I say false teachers, when I talk about false gospel, you, you, would, you most people think false teacher is teaching a false gospel. Uh, so we think uh, a false teacher equals teaching false things. Sometimes. But a lot of times, no, more often than not, false teachers are teaching true things in a false way. Yeah. Remember in uh, Luke chapter 4 when Satan conf- uh, was tempting Jesus in the wilderness right after his baptism? You remember that, how that goes? And so what Satan does to Jesus in the wilderness is he uses the truth. He uses the truth for purposes that wouldn't glorify God. That's his, his point. In other words, as he's tempting Jesus, well, of course Jesus can turn stones into bread that's not hard for him to do or of course Jesus could command angels to catch him from falling of course Jesus is going to one day be uh, king he's gonna of course those things are true but what Satan was doing was tempting Jesus with things that were legitimate it was true but it was truth misapplied and this is what we have to understand is that the truth misapplied if you have your listening guides is no better than error applied. That's the situation that Paul is addressing in Corinth. What the false teachers are doing is the same exact thing that Satan did in the wilderness, which is oftentimes what would deceive people like us. Something's true, and so we say, oh, well, that's true, but it's misapplied. And so we end up in the same place as if we believed something that wasn't even true. Let me show you how that works. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 7. Now watch Paul make these contrasts. Three contrasts. Verse 7. He's talking about the difference between... The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The law versus 
the Spirit. We talked about it last week. Now watch what he does. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Number two, for if the ministry of, the, of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Number three, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. See, what he does is he uses the lesser to give concrete evidence for the greater. In other words, he says, if this is true, then imagine how true this is. So in other words, he's, it's all true. So he's saying, if he's telling you, it'd be like me telling you, look, if you, if you make this much money working 30 hours a week, then think of how much money you could make working 50 hours a week. Right? That's all he's doing. He's taking truth, but he's connecting it so that we're able to, to weave through the deception of those who are trying to misquote, misuse, mislead. Because what happens when, that, when we fall prey to this is we miss out on the full meaning of God's word. We're robbed. That's what happens. When we get truth misapplied, it robs us. See, because truth applied is, is uh, when we apply truth correctly, we receive all that God intended, right? That's why he gave us that truth, was for an intention. So the reason that the enemy's always trying to get us to misapply it is because then we won't receive what was intended through it. You see, we, what we need to do is apply it correctly, and when we do, we find... Uh, a God that's far greater, much grander and sweeter and better than we ever could have imagined. And so there's nothing more exciting than when the truth of God just comes alive in your heart. That is so exciting. Like when, when God shows you something, you know, isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Nothing makes me happier than when I'm just reading God's Word, or sometimes I'm meditating on something, trying to figure it out. I could be driving down the road or just walking or doing, and all of a sudden it hits me, and I go, and God shows me, and it's like this light bulb comes on. I'm like, yes, that's it. That's what Paul's talking about. So we're going to go through the first two. The last contrast he gives will be next week. All right, so let's start with the first one. Prescription to power. He's taking, a, he's taking us on a journey from a prescription to power. Now, prescription's good, but it's not as good as power. Look at verse 7 again. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so there's the prescription, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses, because of the glory of his countenance. So look at the glory that had, which that glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? See, to, to a Jew, there was nothing more sacred than the law. Nothing. They, they 
loved the law. They elevated the law. They worshiped the law. Now, now he's not saying that the law was bad. He's saying it was glorious. He's saying it was so glorious that you couldn't look at Moses' face when he came down. But there's something better, more glorious. Now, he's saying this for two reasons. The first one is, is that the prescription, well, it, in, it increased the awareness of sin. The Bible says it actually incited us to sin more. See, when you think about it, like, let's suppose you're driving down the road. I remember one time me and my family were driving across uh, Texas. Praise God, I hope I never have to do that again. I'm driving across Texas, and I thought, or, is this Texas or Canada? Like, really? Anyway, and so there's whole hours of time where there's like cows and windmills. That's it. No humans, no you better have gas in your tank because you are completely in trouble. And we're just going and going and going. Well, there's long stretches. So here's one of the things I noticed, that there's no speed limit. I mean, let me rephrase that. There's no signs. They don't have any signs. Probably because the wind always blows 87 miles an hour because there's nothing but a couple cows to break it. And that's why they got all those windmills, which is probably making it even more windy. I don't really know how that works. But I'm just telling you, they don't have any signs. So I'm driving along. I notice there's no signs. So I think, I mean, there's no signs. So if there's no signs, what does that mean? I don't know, but I'm thinking I can go fast as I want to because there's no sign. And anyway, there can't be any police. So here we go. Then, eventually, I see a sign. Now, what do you think I did when I saw the sign? Slow down a little because I saw a sign. In other words, when I didn't know what the speed limit is, then I could just go as fast as I wanted to. But when I saw the sign, then it, I was convicted by how fast I was going in relation to the sign. But did I obey the sign? Well, no. I slowed down. See, the only time we obey the sign is when? If when you see the Officer Hendry on the side of the interstate... You slow, but see, I don't because he goes to church here, so I just go right past him. <laughs> see, I know he knows that it's me, and then he prays for me. <laughs> and then I text him and say, There's an emergency, someone needs me. <laughs> so, listen, you see, the 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 the, the law. Just simply, like, you could, before the law came, well, there's no sign, so you could just do whatever. But then when the sign comes, you're like, oh, uh uh-oh. Now you realize, so see, it, it made us aware of sin. And then also we realized we couldn't abide by it, so then the failure of that, so it increased sin all the more. I mean, it's true, and... So many simple areas of our lives. I mean, you know, you remember when, or some of you, you know, now you got little kids and they're learning to talk. 
And some of the words they're learning, you know, rhyme with other words that shouldn't be learned. And so here's what happens. Rookie parents. You know how you know rookie parents? Let me tell you how you know. Rookie parents. Little Johnny is trying to say a word. Now, you know, I don't want to plant a cuss word in your mind right now because we're in church. So little Johnny's trying to learn a word, and it sounds like another word. So he blurts out a cuss word, and rookie parents all go, Oh, never say that again. Do not say that. Whatever you do, don't say that ever again. Big mistake. Now... Little Johnny's in the preschool department walking around going, blank, 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 blank. You know why? Because you just overreacted to that. And so he thought, well, awesome. I'm saying that all the time. Right? Yeah. The next thing you know, you're Pastor Chandler, whose kid is just getting thrown out of preschool for cussing all day. Because he just knows a bunch of words that rhyme with other words. See, what happens is the prescription creates a problem. Look at how the Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. See that? Then he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So is that the problem? No. Did, did that, which is good, then bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. You see, the law doesn't make us sin. The law causes us to recognize what we are. You see? That's what happens. So the first problem with the law is that it brings awareness to sin and increases sin. But the second reason why Paul is trying to get the church at Corinth to see the difference is because the law was powerless to change the human heart. It was powerless to change the human heart. See, Notice it came in letters. It came written on stone. It came with the appearance of permanence, with the appearance of, but it didn't work and it didn't last. That's not how it, it, it was lifeless. See, if all you have is external regulations, there's going to be problems. It's, it's, gonna, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna work. See, think about this. You could spend your time obeying the five pillars of the Koran to be a good Muslim, but it's a ministry of death. You could devote yourself to searching through your genealogy and practicing baptism of the dead so that you could be a good Mormon but it's just going to be a ministry of death. That's all it's going to be. See, if, or, you, or, you're, or maybe you practice a Christianity that requires you to do certain things in order to please God. 
It's a ministry of death. Don't you see that all these people that would claim to be Christians, would claim to serve the, the same God who's revealed in the Bible that you're holding in your lap, but who believe that you do certain things to please God, you're the same as a Mormon or a Muslim. It's a false gospel. You know, I hear people express things like, well, you know, you should be a Christian. You want to be a Christian? Well, well, you know, come to church, stop swearing, care about the poor, read through your Bible in a year. It's a false gospel. It's a man-centered false gospel. And mostly what I see today is a culture filled with churches that think they're really clever. What they do is they take the truth and misapply it by presenting Christianity as a way to resolve your bad habits, as a way to resolve your problems. I mean, you can't drive down the road anywhere without seeing somebody's church sign or billboard. You know, what? And you know, come, five ways to fix your marriage or, you know, ten steps to a happy family or raising your kids or this or that or whatever it is. See, do these things and this will be the result and it's a false gospel. It's false. See, what people need to hear... What I, what I want to see is a sign that says, hey, Christianity is about a God who forgives people who can't fix anything in their life. That's what Christianity is. It's a God who forgives people who can't fix their marriage, who can't raise good kids, who can't do the right thing, who can't drive the speed limit, who can't whatever it is, can't do, can't can't change their bad habits. The gospel is about a God who loves you when you can't do any of those things and who will change you from the inside out so that you look like a different person. But he's the one that does all the changing. See, the message of the New Testament is not how you can become a good person. That is a ministry of death. Look again at verse 7 and following. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which, was, which glory was passing away, well then how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now notice how much Paul wants to connect what he's saying, which is not bad about the law, He's elevating the law so that he can elevate something else even higher. But notice how intentional he is about connecting this. This glory of the, of the ministry of death written on stone. Where Moses' countenance was so reflected. We'll get deeply into that next week. But it was so uh, shining with glory. The Shekinah glory of God that. People couldn't even look upon it. 
Now, I say this all the time, how everything that God does, he does for a reason. And the way he does it, he does it for a reason. Now, I started thinking about this. I started thinking about all of what Paul's saying in verses 7 and 8. Remember when Moses, remember when he goes up on Mount Sinai? God gives him the Ten Commandments. Before he even gets down from the mountain, you know, God says, hey, I think you better get down there. That's not going good. He doesn't even get off the mountain. He gets down to the bottom and, you know, here's this giant celebration where they're all down there dancing and carrying on and worshiping a golden calf. And so... What does God instruct Moses to do? What is, what is Moses' response? He, he's so angry, he throws down the tablets. They shatter. So much for the permanence of that. It's all symbolic. And then what does he do with the calf? Remember, he gets the calf and he burns it with fire. He burns it with fire in Exodus 32. 3,000 people were struck down that day. 3,000 people lost their lives. Now fast forward. That's the ministry of death written in stone. Fast forward. What's the, what's the last part of verse 8? How will the ministry of the Spirit? So the ministry of the Spirit takes place. That begins in Acts chapter 2. Now the Spirit of God is active throughout all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament. The difference is comes in a permanent new way in Acts chapter 2, right at Pentecost. You remember that? Yeah, 2018, I, I preached on this. Remember what the Feast of Pentecost was? Like, what is, the, what, what is the Feast of Pentecost, that word Pentecost? It's a celebration of the giving of the law, right? See all these details? So Pentecost... Is a celebration among the people of God, celebrating that God gave His law to His people. And in Acts chapter 2, at the celebration of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down upon the people of God, and the Bible says it rests on them like, what is it? Fire. Like fire. And then the Spirit comes and awakens their hearts. Peter stands up. He preaches the gospel with power in the Spirit. How many people are saved that day? 2,999? 3,000 people. How many people died at the bottom of Sinai around that golden calf? 3,000 people. How many people live eternally on the day of Pentecost celebrating the giving of the law? 3,000 people. Exactly. You see how intentional God is in the details? You think that just happened to be that way? So Paul says... For if the ministry of death had glory, 
where 3,000 people died. Now, they eventually fixed it up. You know, he burned it, and then they drank it, and then he went back up there, and then he got another, you know, except for this time, God didn't write it with his finger. He had to chisel it out. All symbolic of all these different things that are going on. And so it had glory. 3,000 people die. It was glorious, but it's a ministry of death. But, but look at what God does. The Spirit comes, the ministry of the Spirit, and 3,000 people get eternal life. Yes. From prescription to power. The ministry of death is a prescription. Here's how you can live. But guess what? It doesn't do you any good if you can't do it. You can't do it. But then when power comes, you get the power to be able to do it, which then leads to the next thing he's going to show us here. Look, condemnation to affirmation. So we contrast prescription to power. Now he's going to contrast condemnation to affirmation. Verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. So look at what he's giving us. He's giving us this this difference, and he's now calling the law the ministry of condemnation. Now, Now, why is it the ministry of condemnation? Well, because what happens when someone shows you something that's really great and says, look here, but you can't have it. All you have to do is this to get it when they know you can't do that. It condemns you. You trying to get, achieve something you can't achieve only leads to condemnation. That's what condemnation is. It's, that, it's just this... this uh, reminder, this voice in your head that's saying, you know what, you're not good enough, you can't do that, you can't achieve that, you can't, so why? Look, the Bible's filled with this point, Deuteronomy 27, curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. Well, so we're all cursed. James chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is guilty of it all. So that means in God's classroom, if you get a 99, it's a failing grade. You're you're guilty of all of it. And here's the problem. In Romans 3, Paul says, well, there's none righteous. No, not one. Zero. So what what do we, I mean, here we have this ministry before us, but Romans chapter 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. There's no chance. There's zero hope. You cannot fulfill the law In your own strength and power. It can only lead to condemnation. That's the point of it. Right? So think about what does this mean? Think about all the ways we 
nod our head like, I get it, but don't get it. See, what do you do when your kids disobey God? Oh, you want me to tell you? I thought you were going to answer. But if you're not going to answer, then of course I'm going to tell you. What do you do? You tell your kids, why have you disobeyed God? You tell them, you ought to, diso- you ought to obey God. Congratulations. You just applied the ministry of condemnation to your children. Now, if your kid was smart and knew what I knew, then your kid would look up at you and say, well, you don't obey God. Cha-ching. Huh? Oh, perfect one casting stones. Now you're saying, but isn't my job? Well, yes. But don't say the wrong thing. Now, why have you not obeyed God? You might as well tell your kid, why didn't you just put a cape on and fly around like Superman? Because they're a kid. So what's the teaching moment when a child disobeys God? Not, hey, you need to obey God. It's, hey, you need to trust God. You didn't obey God because you don't trust God. You don't trust that what God says is better than what you think, than what you did. The reason you did that is because you think your way is better than God's way. And a good parent says, which is the same reason why I sin. Every time I sin, it's because I think my way is better than God's. Because I don't trust God the way I should. Gospel. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory. Hmm. Now when we think about condemnation, most of us, immediately our mind's going to go to Romans 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation. So this is a new covenant declaration because the old covenant was condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus and who walk according to the flesh, but... Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, when we read this, here's what we think. Well, that's great, but condemnation comes in and says, but is that me? Do I walk in the Spirit? See, it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So do you walk in the Spirit? Well, Paul answers. How do you know the answer to that? He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Because he's talking to believers. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. See? So who no longer has condemnation? Not somebody who obeys things perfectly, but who what? Is indwelled by the Spirit. Born again. Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. See that? See what, see how truth misapplied? So so a a scripture like Romans 8.1 meant to set you free actually puts people in bondage because they read it and go, I wish that were true for me. So then Satan has a saved person walking around thinking that 
Well, because I haven't learned how to walk in the Spirit. i got to walk in the Spirit or else I'm going to... I got to try harder. I got to, maybe Pastor Tony will preach on 10 ways to walk in the Spirit. Maybe not. (laughs) Help me, Lord, help me. Let's redeem JFK's famous quote and ask not what you can do for God but what God has done for you. What has God done for you? Yes. See, that's, that's the only way you're going to end up your life commending the gospel. That's how you're going to live a life of consequence. That's how you're going to live a life of impact. That's how you're going to live a life that leaves a legacy behind. I mean, all of us in here, we, we want to we wanna live a productive life. We want to make a difference for Christ. Of course you do. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. But you, you have to understand that the only way that happens is when you operate out of what God has done for you. But if you're operating in a mode of what you can do for God, then... You are spinning your wheels. Remember Ezekiel 36 from last week? God prophesying says, well, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. So if he doesn't put his spirit within you, then what? Forget about it. New Covenant Christianity. Not you performing for God, but God performing in you and for you for His glory. That's what it is. See, God put His power in you. When He he gave you a new heart, He put His Spirit in you. That's what changed you from the old way of living to the new way. Took you from prescription to power, from condemnation to affirmation. So when we think about how this inaugurated in the first chapter of Acts, in that moment when 3,000 people are saved, but I shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you shall be my witnesses. See, I'm going to give you the power so that you can do what I'm calling you to do. See? I'm going to give you this power so you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Are you going to be witnesses to what? Are you going to be witnesses to what you can do for God? No. You're going to be witnesses for what God has done in you. You're going to be witnesses for the power He put in you. Back when I was preaching through Acts, I remembered this uh, little... Matter of fact, I think at this time, if I remember correctly, I was sitting in my office and, uh, you know, I'm just letting you into the bizarre world of what is Tony's brain. And I was, uh, I was just thinking about things and, and I just started thinking, maybe, you know what, maybe, I'm a, maybe God's put something on my heart and I, maybe it's a children's book. I don't know. So 
I just started scribbling this thing out. And it ended up being this explanation. Here's what I said. This world is like an ocean. Your life is like a boat afloat in the open sea. As you look out from your boat, you're surrounded by millions of boats in every direction as far as you can see. And the vast majority of boats around you are content to just float along. They think that the goal is just to stay afloat. So they spend their days drifting. They're unaware that there is a sinister enemy beneath the surface of the ocean. Although it's not visible from the top, there is a current at work pulling them continuously toward danger. The enemy works diligently day and night, not only to ensure that the current stays active, but continually trying to increase the strength of that current. And most people spend their lives drifting upon this ocean until one day the current carries them over the falls, surprised and astonished, but it is everlasting too late. But that's not the purpose for which the boats were created. They were created to sail upon the sea. Their creator designed them to be victorious over the current below. He gave them the wind, his very breath, to propel them forward against the current, no matter how strong the current might be. It wouldn't be by strength or ingenuity, but only by raising the sail. It would then harness the power provided by the Creator. Every once in a while, an ordinary day of drifting, there would be a boat would come sailing through, and other boats would see it and be perplexed at what they saw. Some would be drawn in amazement and reach out to the boat and ask how they might sail. Some, upon hearing of the Creator's goodness and providing the wind, would, would be pierced at the heart and forsake a life of drifting and raise up their sails and catch the Creator's breath. And devoting their lives to sailing amongst other drifters, spreading the good news of the Creator's generosity and sharing the joy of living with purpose and meaning. But that's not the end of the story. What if I told you that some sailors would then let their sails down because they didn't want to look different from the drifters. They wanted to fit in. Or even that some sailors chose to spend their lives only sailing around other sailors, never sailing amongst the drifters, but content to leave them at the mercy of the current below. Bible says in 2 Peter 1, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about the gospel, we can think about it this way. God wants to blow the wind of His Spirit into our lives. That's his desire. 
He sees us aimlessly drifting in condemnation so that the sale of our witness is propelled forward by His awesome power. So that we would do things that we could not do in our own strength. We would go places that we could not go under our own power. And what would result is that we would see God accomplish things through us that only God could do. So as we think about today and we think about where we are and we think about how did we get to where we are and how do we plan to get from where we are to where we want to be? What is your plan for that? Are you going to work harder? Are you going to strive more? Are you going to make more lists? Are you going to... And it's just going to yield the same thing. Or are you going to operate in the power that God and only God can provide? And you see, the question... The question when we fail, the question when we sin, the question when we fall short is not, it's not, oh no, I can't believe I did that. Of course you did that. That's the wrong question. The question is, why would I ever have wanted that more than what God wanted? See, the question is, what's, what's, what's wrong in my affections? What would cause me to not want to do the things that the one who gives me strength would want me to do? Sometimes we're content just to drift. Because we look around, we surround ourselves with other drifters. We feel, com- we feel comfortable there. We're afraid to, to sail. Because we don't know where that wind's going to take us. We don't, we don't know what that's going to be like. We just, we just don't know. We don't want to leave the comfort of all of our other drifters. Sometimes you, you see somebody sailing by out in the distance and, and you just think, wow, what would it be like? But you just think, but that, that they're different. That's them. That's, that's, that, they're not, I'm not like them. So the first question you've got to ask yourself is, the, has God's breath come into your life? Has the wind blown into your heart? Do you have a new heart? Have you been born again? Or have you just been drifting because all you have is your own strength and power? And the crazy thing is, is that so many times what holds us in the camp of the drifters, so crazy, that in a moment like this we think, God, I just want to, I want to respond. I want to receive your power. I want to, but you know what? 
the crazy thing is we worry about other drifters. The opinions of other drifters, the thoughts of other drifters towards us. It's so crazy. Because you know what I know? Is that every person sailing will rejoice and sing and dance with you when you figure out how to sail too. What are you going to do?